again and open up God's Word. And now I get to do it with an astronaut looking over my shoulder. <laughs> oh, I'm excited about that. But I have a question for you this morning. As believers, how can we honor Jesus Christ in the face of hostility? How can we exalt Christ in a society that's growing increasingly antagonistic toward the Bible and toward the gospel? Right? Persecution, persecution is nothing new. You know, one of my favorite books uh, that I have and I crack open at least once a year is Fox's Book of Martyrs. And the, that book is a catalog of martyrs' stories, and it recalls hundreds of believers who are faithful in the face of persecution all the way to death and their martyrdom. And I think that every believer should, and, and, uh, should at least read it, if not own it, and be encouraged by the stories of faithful believers who stood in the face of persecution. Another book that I actually read this year, it's called Fairer Sunshine, and it's, uh, it, it, it recalls and accounts of the persecution of the Scottish covenanters of the 17th century. And in Scotland at the time, the crown and the church were synonymous, and everyone was required to call James VII the head of the church. And there grew a group uh, in Scotland that named themselves the covenanters for, they, for the covenant that they would make with God. And they would help lead the progression of the Scottish Reformation of the time. And they, these believers, they'd meet in open-air churches out in the fields, and they resisted the crown, and they were in turn persecuted by the military and thus killed. There were two such covenanters that I'd like to tell you their story. Their names were Margaret McLaughlin and Margaret Wilson. They came to be known as the two Margarets. Uh, Margaret McCaughlin was 63 years old and Wilson just 18 years old. They were betrayed by an informant and they were arrested for their quote-unquote rebellion. And after about a month in prison, they were tried as rebels and sentenced to death by drowning. And if, it, if that wasn't as bad enough, they, the way they decided to carry this out was to stake them in Wigton Bay. And the dragoons' ideas were to chain them in the low tide so they would have time to think about and change their mind about pledging the allegiance to the crown as the tide would come in. But the time that they had watching the tide come in only resolved their thinking. And so the two Margarets, one old and one young, but both strong in the faith, as the account goes, would pray for the queen, king. They would quote scripture and sing hymns until the salt water filled their lungs. And there is, to this day, a memorial stake in that spot to remember those martyrs. And that's just one of the stories of, of the accounts of martyrdom and persecution and harm that has come on believers throughout the years. And I ask myself, what was it that enabled them to stand there watching the tide come in with every wave just approaching a little bit higher? Because they knew, they knew that they would die. And maybe we will never be asked to die for Christ, but we can be fairly certain that living for him is only going to get more and more difficult. Here we are at the tail end of Pride Month where the sign of the Noahic Covenant has been twisted and perverted to represent an unabashedly, unashamed, high rebellion against God himself. Where if you don't celebrate the rebellion, then you are a, big, a bigot, you're a misogynist, you're a homophobe. 
In a message a few years ago, a local pastor put it this way, and I quote, Christians are now the minority, but Christ is our king. Scripture is our law. Now, in ways that have not been true in the past, Scripture and the laws of our country are colliding head on, and we're going to feel it. We are the target now. We are in the bullseye, and there's no deception that this is truly how it is. There will be a barrage of persecution. These are going to be very challenging days, but we will not bow. We will be gracious, yes. We will be loving, but we will render to God that which is his, unquote. And as we turn our attention to scripture, do you remember what, why Peter is even writing this book? You'll find it in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. He says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm. That's the whole point of this book. Stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm in the grace of our Lord. Stand firm in the lordship of Christ. So how can we honor Christ in a society that hates him and hates those who love him? And if you're new uh, with us, just to summarize the book, Peter is writing to a church that is currently being persecuted. And the apostle makes it clear as he lays out how to stand firm. And he gives the church four pillars to stand on. First, as they live in this hostile environment, Peter wants them to remember their salvation in chapter 1. Remember. They're to remember on a daily basis the gospel of grace. Remember what God has done for them. Remember that he caused them to be born again. Second pillar, Peter reminds them that that the the church is called to submit. Submit to all God-appointed authorities. Right? Christians were not to be making waves or be rebellious, but submit to those authorities unless they ask you to sin. But otherwise, you submit to those authorities in your life. And you see that in chapters 2 and 3. And then he tells them that, You need to suffer, or at least be willing to suffer like Christ. Christians are to follow Christ's example in suffering. Jesus was persecuted unjustly, and so you'll be persecuted unjustly. Follow his example and respond the way that he responded. And finally, as he wraps up the epistle in chapter 4 and 5, in the local church, he tells them to serve, to serve. They're to give themselves away to one another. Have this attitude uh, with, with one another in this type of community where it's not all about oneself. It's all about the other person. It's all about Christ being exalted. And as I give myself away, I am now a vessel of his glory. And so you could summarize the whole book of 1 Peter with those four S's. Salvation, submission, suffering, and serving. And our passage this morning is in the suffering portion of the book. So let's stand as we read our passage together, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. Follow along as I read, for this is the word of the Lord. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, 
that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to be looking at how to conduct ourselves in a hostile world. And we're going to see six helps in a hostile world. Those are the six points of your notes. We're going to see six safeties to navigate the war zone, six securities to take to the bank, however you want to put it. There's six components to living in a hostile world for Christ. So let's start in verse 13 with point number one. How do we stand firm in a hostile world? First, We need to passionately practice performing good. Passionately practice performing good. And it may sound like I stole this point from Jeremy's sermon last week. And yes, I did. I did it because Peter just, he picks up right on the same theme. He asks a rhetorical question in verse 13. He says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Basically, he's saying, who is going to persecute you if you do what is right? And it's an obvious answer, right? All things being equal, and, we're all, and if, we talk, if we're talking about normal circumstances across the board, the answer is no one. No one's going to persecute you, right? Because normally it's the evildoers who are persecuted and judged and punished by their government, not those who are pursuing good or doing good to their neighbors. And Peter asks, well, who is going to harm you? Who is going to be hostile to you when you do what is right? And we get this, right? I mean, generally speaking, if you serve one another or serve other people and do good towards other people, you won't be punished, right? If you help those in need, usually someone is there to help you when you're in need. If you pay your credit card on time, usually you don't have financial trouble, right? If you exercise and take care of your body, usually you have a long, healthy life. And so there's this idea that this active goodness towards others disarms those who might otherwise be hostile towards you. And I want to emphasize again what Peter says here and what Jeremy affirmed last week, and I'm going to say it again this morning, that this is not some type of moralistic kumbaya, take care of your fellow man, pseudo-Christianity. That's not the goodness that he's talking about. Peter here is talking about rege- talking to regenerate believers who have been born again, who pursue goodness because of the inward change the Spirit has done in their hearts. Listen, you are saved unto good deeds. You are not saved by your good deeds. Let me say it again. It's so important that we understand this. You are not saved. Uh, you are saved unto good deeds. You are not saved by your good deeds. And in a small survey of the New Testament, it shows us what these good deeds look like. Listen as I read. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8 says this, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10 states that as you walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the Lord, you will Bear fruit in every good work and multiply in the knowledge of God. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, command them to do good. Be rich in good deeds and be generous and willing to share. Similarly, in Titus chapter 2, verse 7, Paul tells Titus, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with all purity and in doctrine. And the Apostle James in his epistle asks, who is wise among you? 
Well, let him show it by his good conduct and his works in gentleness, in the gentleness of wisdom. John, he's consistent with the rest when he exhorts us in 3 John verse 11, the one who does good is of God. And so back in 1 Peter chapter 3, he's saying that the passionate lifestyle and the pursuit of doing good has a way of restraining or disarming the most hateful of enemies. But many of us, out of pride or self-righteousness or fear, we've isolated ourselves from the world. We barely do any good deed for anyone, especially those who are lost that are around us. So it's a worthy task this morning to ask yourself, when was the last time that you actually did a good deed? And here's the important part of the question that you're going to ask yourself. When's the last time you did a good deed for someone else for the purpose of manifesting Christ to the lost? You're going to have to ask yourself that. Because after all, that's exactly what Christians do. We do good deeds because it is Christ who has purposed those good deeds for us to accomplish. And Peter says we have to be passionately zealous for this. Zealous just means enthusiastic. You're, You're caught up in it. You're excited about the next opportunity that comes across your path to share Christ with someone. True Christians make it a habit not to pursue evil, but to habitually practice good. And so I mentioned, you know, uh, there are exceptions to the rule sometimes. And so what are we to do when those exceptions in life come? That leads us to our second point this morning. Our second way to live in a hostile world is to be happy to suffer for what is right. We need to be happy to suffer for what is right. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness... You are blessed. Listen, life isn't fair. Sometimes life isn't fair. And it's tempting to become angry and upset and frustrated and lash out when life is not fair. And in those times, it's critical. It is so critical to inform our mind and thereby our actions with how Scripture commands us to act. Peter tells us what to think and how to feel when we're hit with those unfair exceptions to the rule. Yes, we are to pursue good that will likely disarm. But look at verse 14. He starts with a strong contrast here. He says, but even if, he's saying it's unlikely, but it's possible. Even if you are persecuted for doing good, you are blessed. You are counted to be happy. This is a positive thing. And so how in the world is this a good thing to be persecuted? You know, how were the martyrs of ages past blessed while they were burning at the stake or being beheaded or quartered, drawn, flayed, drowned? How were Peter's audience blessed when they saw Nero use Christians as torches to light up the street like street lamps? Peter homes in our thinking here. The Christian mindset we notice in verse 14 knows that it is a blessing to suffer for the sake of righteousness. In the face of persecution, we need to remember that to suffer for the cause of Christ is actually a great blessing. The suffering one day will be eternally rewarded by Jesus himself. That's why it's a good thing. And Peter's speaking from experience here. If you read the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, after being flogged, beaten up, whipped by the Sanhedrin, and he was told, do not preach anymore, what did the apostles do? 
they considered it a joy. They rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. And, it, and wasn't it the Apostle Paul who wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.17 that for this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. You see, when we as Christians view suffering from a heavenly perspective and rightly consider our trials as joy, we make it our ambition to, in everything that we do to be pleasing to Christ. That's what it means to think like a Christian. Jesus even preaches this in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 and 12. He, he teaches us that the, the reasons that we can be happy, the reasons that we can be called blessed... He says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, those, are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets before you. And so we can be blessed when we understand what God is doing. And you might push back a little bit and say, how can I consider myself blessed and happy when I've just been stabbed in the back with a knife of injustice? Well, James chapter 1 verse 2 tells us to consider it all joy, knowing that the, test, that the, uh, the, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance in your life. And secondly, know that your reward is coming. Right? Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, Peter now, he moves on to give us another help in living in a hostile world. Number three, do not surrender to intimidation. Do not surrender to intimidation. This last half of verse, verse 14 says, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Literally, he's telling his reader, do not fear their fear. They're trying to intimidate you. They are trying to make you afraid. And the fear of man is a real temptation in the face of persecution. And I think that fear creeps up most when there's a perception that something outside of ourselves and something maybe more powerful can hurt us or harm us. You know, I, I recently competed in a Brazilian jiu-jitsu competition. And for those of you who don't know what jiu-jitsu is, it's a grappling martial art. That's why on occasion I'm limping around church. But the thing to understand about these competitions is that the participants span a huge range on one side, you have hobbyist practitioners on the one end, and on the other, you have serious competitors who have sponsors, and they train seven days a week. I have no sponsors, by the way. And as I was waiting in the bullpen at the competition with the other men who are my age and my rank and my weight, there were some intimidation tactics at play. Um, it was as if I was about to go to war, and, you know, and the, the nerves start building up. And, you know, I understand that I'm, I'm not a small man, but one of the, the guys had headphones on and his hands were the size of bear paws. And he stood a couple inches taller than me and he turns and he says to me, I didn't know they were going to let me fight the lightweights. Uh, oh, man. He was trying to make me fear his intimidation. 
The word fear Peter uses here is where we get our word phobia, right? Don't fear their intimidation. Don't be seized with terror and run away. God tells us don't run away from suffering. Don't flee. Don't go dark. Don't go off grid. Don't join the exodus out of California. Don't fortress yourself in your home and find rest in your comfort. Peter says, don't worry about what will happen to you. Don't be troubled. This word troubled has the idea of being agitated or being made uneasy. It, it, it points to inner turmoil. And like Trouble is like shaking, up, shaking you up like a glass of water in a cup holder as you go off-roading. It's unstable. It's shaky. It becomes rattled. So why are we to avoid these things? Because if you're troubled, then you're hampered. It means you're distracted. If you're troubled, then you're dominated by your emotions and not by the spirit who strengthens your faith. We can be free from that inner agitation and emotional worry because we know that God is on our side. And we must remember that we are not the first generation to be persecuted for the faith that we proclaim. It was only the fresh relationship and the knowledge of the word of God that allowed the two Margarets and men like Martin Luther or William Tyndale to stand in the onslaught of persecution with threats of imprisonment and death. It is a dependence upon the spirit and a high view of God's sovereignty which allows us not to be fearful and not to be intimidated and not to be troubled. It can be unnerving to think about the fact that there might be a time and there might be a time coming soon where there might be people who would harm us, imprison us, kill us, inflict harm on those whom we love because of the faith that we proclaim. Those are real concerns. And they can cause our hearts to grow anxious if we allow our minds to be preoccupied with them. But instead of being preoccupied, uh, instead of letting fear rule, fear rule your emotions, we need to be preoccupied with Christ as our Lord, and your persecution will then be put in perspective rather quickly. And that's what Peter contrasts for us in verse 15. Look at it. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. This is our fourth help to living in a hostile world. Follow Christ alone as master. Follow Christ alone as master. This word sanctify here basically means to set apart, to honor, to treat as holy. And Peter's point is this. Rather than, rather than succumbing to the fear of man, believers are called to operate out of a holy reverence for Jesus Christ. You see, a holy fear of God delivers us from the sinful fear of men. Christ is our king. Christ is our sovereign. Christ is our master. Christ is our Lord. And so when the world demands that we be fearful, intimidated by its ungodly agenda, our response is to then refuse because we do not serve this world. We serve Christ and Christ alone. Listen, church, we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve two masters. When you become a Christian, listen to what Paul writes in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When you become a believer, Christ becomes Lord of your life. You submit to that fact. 
And I fear that there's a confusing or unbiblical understanding of salvation that's prevalent within American churches and our culture, and maybe even in this room, where you believe that you can just believe in God, but not submit to him as Lord. You cannot believe today and then get serious about him five years down the line. You can't do that and call yourself a Christian. Christians sanctify Christ in their hearts as Lord. You cannot divorce Jesus from being God and Lord over your life. You become a believer when you accept Christ Jesus, the Lord. Not just the Christ, but the whole Christ. One preacher illustrated it this way. If I came to your door and knocked and you came and said, who is it? And I said, hey, it's me. It's Matt Davis. And they say, and you say to me, Matt, come in. But Davis, you stay out. Right? You can't do that. It's impossible. It, it, it's the same way with Christ Jesus, the Lord. And I want to spend some time, some serious time, understanding what it means to have Christ as Lord of your life. Because it's in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul writes that God bestowed on him, that is Jesus, the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That means then that he is the head. He is the master. He is the chief. He is the king. He is the authority. He is preeminent in all things. And if you look at your life and it's not obvious who your master is, you need to take some serious, sober stock of your life. You might ask, well, how will I know that Jesus is Lord of my life? Well, first off, you'll obey him. You'll obey him. Obviously, there's going to be times where we don't do it perfectly, but slaves, they desire to please their master. The trend is that you're obedient. But even when you fail, your, your heart's desire is to please the master. So you will obey Jesus in all things. You'll know if Jesus is Lord of your life, if there's a willingness to do anything for Christ. If there's a willingness to do anything for Christ. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus lays out the cost of being a disciple of Christ. And he, tells that he, sa he says that I must deny myself. I must die to my desires. I must hate my mother, hate my brother. I must hate any relationship that detracts from my love for my Savior. I must be willing to sell everything that I have for Christ's sake. I must be willing to pick up my own cross and carry it every day, walking up the hill and die on that cross if that's what Jesus requires of me. And that's what Paul says is our acceptable act of worship to God. Right? Worship, worshiping God is much more than just singing songs. And Peter here in verse 15, he tells us to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That means to acknowledge him as master. Set him apart from all other peoples, all other allegiances. Because listen, if Jesus is Lord, then he is in control. He is true and he is good. Doesn't that put suffering into perspective? So with a hostile world confronting you, he's doing it for your good. Right? That's what Romans 8.28 says. That For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So we can trust Jesus' word when we take the gospel to our neighborhood, to our community, to our city, to the nations. And Jesus' promise, right, 
Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the proof of Christ's lordship in your life comes when you are tested. How can we make sure then that we'll pass the test when it comes? Simple answer again, obey Jesus in the little things. Obey Jesus in the little things. Do you know how many quotes I found this week about, uh, from athletes and champions who've competed at the highest level? That, you know what they all talk about? It's the fundamentals. The fundamentals. Because when you practice the fundamental things over and over and over and over again, you will become successful. Master the basics so that when the time comes for testing, they'll pass you the ball and you can hit that three-point shot buzzer beater. Peter's point here is that you, not, you just can't know that Jesus is Lord of your life. You have to live like it. You have to live like Christ is Lord of your heart. Church, we cannot choose uh, pick and choose what commands to obey. All right, we can't do it. This is, this is not some buffet line of Christianity where you can get two desserts but leave the spinach. You can't do that. It's not how God intended the church to be. I looked up church, uh, uh, church attendance statistics this week, and it was jarring. 30% of pastors, according to a LifeWay research study, consider regular attendance being two Sundays a month. I just don't know how that jives with Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, where it says, do not forsake the assembling of believers together. That's a command. You know, if I showed up to work less than half the time, it'd be curtains for me. You know, I understand vacations or being deathly ill, and I'm not being legalistic since it's a command of God. But we have to, we have to ask ourselves, why is the beach? Why is Disneyland? Why is sleeping in? Why is housework more important than being at church? Why is it more important than obeying God? Scripture has also commanded us to give sacrificially. Do you know what sacrificially means? It means that it hurts when you do it, but it's a joy. We're commanded also to forgive one another. We're commanded to serve one another with our giftedness. We're commanded to share the gospel not just when we feel like it or when it's convenient. These things are not optional. You're commanded to love your spouse, to be patient and loving towards your children. And so if we're doing what Peter is telling us to do and sanctifying Jesus Christ as Lord of our hearts, then he's ruling every single decision. We must love Christ as Lord. This means that he's going to be our first love our relationships, our priorities, our choices then will reflect that love that we have for Jesus Christ. We are his slave now. He is our greatest delight. Our deepest satisfaction is found in Christ and he is the object of our highest worship. And that's hard for us in Santa Clarita. It's hard. Is there anything in your life that you love more than Christ? And I'm going to ask you again. I'm going to let that question sit. So prepare for it to be a little awkward. But you need to think about it. Is there anything in your life that you love more than Christ? Car? House? 
financial security, career, children, sports, your spouse, the way you look, what kind of books you read, your health, where you go to school, how many likes you get, politics? Is there anything in your life that you love more than Christ? Frankly, we live in a culture that's very confused when it comes to even family and the church. You ever heard the, family, uh, the phrase family first? You know, it's family above everything. You know, church, we have to get this right. It's Christ first. It's Christ first. He is the Lord. And when persecution comes and we value our kids more than we do Christ, we will compromise God's word for the sake of our kids. If our financial security is threatened and we value that more than Christ, when the heat comes, you will not stand firm for Christ. I guarantee it. And if you are a believer here today and there's anything else that's sitting on the heart, on the throne of your heart, other than Jesus Christ himself, then repent and ask the Lord to bring you back to your first love. This is something that you do in the internal recesses of your heart. We do this by being saturated with his word. And this is not some sort of formulaic Christianity that we can just check boxes in. This is a relationship with Christ, a personal relationship that you can and that you should adore more than anything this world has to offer. You know, I prayed hard this week not to make this feel like a lashing, but a loving exhortation and a genuine appeal to your heart to examine it with the scriptures. And I say these things that knowing that I've had to grapple with these questions in my own heart this week. So far, we've seen in order to honor Christ in a hostile world, we're to passionately practice performing good. We're to be happy to suffer for what is right. We are not to surrender to intimidation. And we're to follow Christ alone as master. And so just to summarize those things, we're to act like Christians, right? You're to think like Christians. And now our fifth help coming up in a ho- how to live in a hostile world, we're not to speak like Christians. Speak like Christians. Number five, be prepared to give an answer. Look at 1 Peter 3.15. After we sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence, So let's break this down into some bite-sized chunks to understand what Peter's saying here. See, we have a message that we've been commissioned to deliver to an unbelieving world around us. So how are we to do it? Well, first, we need to be prepared. We must be prepared. We need to be ready to give a defense. Well, who are we supposed to give a defense to? Well, anyone, anywhere, anytime. We have to be prepared. We need to be ready to give an answer. And our word apologetics, when you think about apologetics, meaning the defense of the faith, it has its root in the Greek word that Peter uses here. And in this context, it's referring to being able to give a clear and credible answer for what you believe and why you believe it. And I think Peter really has the individual in mind here, right? It's a personalized defense using your own testimony of the hope that's within you. 
And the phrase, always ready, it indicates that uh, believers ought to be prepared for all and every kind of these encounters. Remember, persecution is coming. Persecution's coming. So let's get ready so that we're not caught off guard when someone asks us what, what we believe or why we believe it. And naturally, you should be asking yourself then, am I ready? Am I ready to give a defense? When you're at work or a neighbor asks you about your Christian values, are you ready? When your kids come to you and ask you about heaven, are you ready? When someone asks you to make sense about what they're seeing on the news, famine, wars, dictatorships, are you ready? When you come next Saturday to canvas the neighborhoods with us and tell them about uh, Sunday nights under the oaks, are you ready? The bottom line is that believers need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within them. How about the times when you stayed silent and should have spoken up, but you stayed, said nothing? What about those times where you should have shared the gospel? You should have shared about the hope that was in you, but you stayed quiet. And I won't ask you to raise your hand, but if I did, I'm sure there'd be a lot of hands raised, including my own. And why is that? Why do we stay silent in those times? It's because we haven't sanctified Christ as Lord in our hearts. In that moment, he wasn't our first love. He wasn't the master of our lives. He wasn't our greatest delight. But before you go beat yourself up, do you think Peter knew what failure was? Three times he denied Christ. Peter knows what it is to be persecuted. But you tell me, Matt, you know, I don't know Greek. I don't know Hebrew. I don't know how to combat the nuances of every false religion. I don't know the, the answer to philosophical arguments. Well, that's not what Peter's saying here. Being ready means that you're ready to tell people about the transforming grace of the gospel. That's it. Tell them how the gospel changed your life. Take them to the word of God and show them that this is now the truth being lived out in your life. Your own story of God working in your life while you point them to scripture as the foundation of your life should illustrate the power and acts as a defense of your faith. This takes preparation. You should be able to point people to the scriptures. And Peter asks us this morning, are you ready? And if you are ready, you need to be clear on the purpose of making a defense. Why do we give a defense? We see that in the rest of verse 15. The purpose of our message is to point people to Christ. When unbelievers, when they eventually are going to ask the Christian who's being persecuted, why are you doing this? Why don't you just give up? Why aren't you lashing out at the one who's persecuting you? The answer that we must give is, and, and we must do is point those people to Christ. You know, and it's the, the, the hope that we have in Christ. This is not some kind of pipe dream kind of hope. It's not some kind of fairy tale kind of hope. It's not a toss a quarter in the fountain kind of hope. No, we have absolute certainty of our hope because it's grounded in the promises of God. It's grounded in the person and work of Christ Jesus. It's grounded in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when you hope in something, it's only as good as the object that you're hoping in. My grandpa growing up, he would uh, he'd always tell me, when I win the lotto, you know, I'll buy you a truck. Or when I win the lotto, I'll, I'll get you a house. Or when I win the lotto, I'll get you whatever you want. You know, which, which I always found weird because he never played the lotto. <laughs> 
But if he had played the lotto, his hope would only be as good as one in 176 million chance. I don't like those odds. But when we, as believers, hope in God, our hope is certain because the object of our hope is absolutely certain. Peter reminds us that we've been saved unto a living hope in chapter 1, verse 3. Hope in Christ that he promised to make all things new. Certain hope that he will come again. Certain hope that sin will be dealt with forever. Certain hope that he will conquer death and it will be no more. Certain hope that heaven is waiting for us. Certain hope that Christians will spend eternity enjoying the beauty and depths of the Father. So how can we not have a defense for this gospel? How, why, why wouldn't we want to share that? with those who are lost. And if we're to be prepared to give a defense, in what manner should we present it? How should we talk about it? Look at verse 15, with gentleness and reverence. Listen, we cannot be caustic. We cannot be harsh. We cannot be sarcastic. We cannot be abusive or combative when we share this message. Some translations you might have is courtesy and respect. Peter points out that if our actions are to be characterized by holiness and humility, then our speech should be just the same with gentleness and reverence, courtesy and respect. Look, I've been there before when I've been bashing someone over the head with my spiritual hammer. And perhaps you have too. You know, I've been so right in my own thinking that I've been terribly wrong. I've condemned the lost, forgetting that I once was condemned. I was prickly for the gospel. I was being a repellent because of my presentation. I was forgetting about the log that was in my own eye, seeking to help someone with the speck in theirs. Maybe you can relate. And so we cannot speak with a spiritual superiority, but rather with a gentle humility, modesty, meekness, courteous, gentle, winsome testimony for the gospel of Christ. And yet doing this without ever, ever compromising the truth. And if we're emulating Jesus Christ, John chapter 1 describes Jesus being full of grace and truth. You can do both of those because we are to be like Christ be full of grace and truth. Remember, the goal is not to win arguments, it's to see souls won for Christ. So your tone and your attitude matter when you present the gospel or you present the defense of your hope. And so that brings us now to the sixth help to live in a hostile world. Lastly, maintain a clear conscience. Maintain a clear conscience. Notice what Peter says in verse 16. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are being slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Peter is saying that our life provides the stage in which you can give a credible testimony. See, the word used is basically, it's like a soul reflection, knowing yourself. We must be above reproach and live in a way that no accusation can be made against you. And no accusation will stick because your behavior is impeccable. And that's exactly how Peter instructs his readers to behave. Live in such a way that your life does not undermine the testimony of Christ. Listen, a holy life is a powerful testimony to the gospel. 
but a hypocritical life is an equally powerful detriment to the veracity of your testimony. So when Peter talks of our conscience, that is our God-implanted ability to evaluate the moral quality of your actions, he wants our conscience to be cleansed by God's grace, enlightened by the Spirit, polished by God's Word, so that we can know what to say, how to act, and especially in the face of difficulties and persecution. And another application this morning is, you know, is, is going to God in prayer and asking him if there be anything that you need to repent of. Is there anything that you need to make right with the Lord? And if you bring something to mind, then you deal with it. You deal with it biblically. If it's personal sin, you deal with it. Private sins, deal with it. Public, public sins, deal with it. Through repentance. And Peter gives us the reason for this. Verse 16 says, so that. Whenever you see so that, it's a purpose statement. Right? If we are prepared, if Christ is our first love and my conscience is clear, which means I'm prayed up and dealing with all the known sins, what will happen? Look at verse 16. That those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So how are the believers in the first century being slandered and reviled? Well, they were being called cannibals for eating and drinking the blood of Christ. These rumors started circulating and malicious lies crept into the zeitgeist and made life so difficult for those early believers. But when we act the way that Peter lays out with a submissive heart and a ready answer and a gentle spirit and a clear conscience, then these rumors have no legs to stand on. But when we act, uh, you know, the, the, peop the people lying and viciously attacking will be put to shame and ultimately disgraced. And it's crucial as he wraps up in verse 17 that we suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And that's just common sense. Look at verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing good, for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. This brings us back to the key issue, right? There's two types of suffering. One for acting like Christ and one where you act out in the flesh. And if you want to be like Christ, then suffering will come. It means that you will be rejected and betrayed at some point. And sometimes when that happens, we're surprised. Why? Should you be treated better than Christ? Remember, if your conscience is clean and Christ is your master, it will silence the slanderers and it will be a powerful witness to the critics and onlookers. So as we bring all this together, we ask the question again, how can Christians honor Christ in the face of a hostile world? This morning we looked at 1 Peter chapter 3, 13 through 17 in order to answer that question. Our behaviors, our actions, our thinking, our words, our testimony must reflect Christ. Even if the world around us hates us, we are called to act like Christians, not returning evil for evil, but following the patient, humble example of our Lord. And even if people should threaten us, we will not fear for we will be passionately pursuing good, happy to suffer for what is right. We will not surrender to intimidation. Christ will be on the throne of our hearts. We will always be ready to give an answer, all the while keeping a clear conscience.
And so Peter's exhortation here is very simple and very straightforward. And really, when you think about it, when persecution comes, is it any different than how we are to act day to day? No. Christy and I, we had a framed poster in our apartment early in our marriage, and the slogan was made popular in World War II, and it's, it's uh, keep calm and carry on. Listen, if we are sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts, Lord of our thoughts, Lord of our lives, then we can keep calm and face a hostile world that is against us, because no matter how much we might suffer for him, it is nothing in comparison to what Christ has suffered for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the reminder from from Peter this morning that we are called to honor you, to honor you as Lord, Savior in our hearts, even if it becomes risky to do so, politically risky, even with our friend groups. I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to give us the courage and resolve to stand firm in the midst of persecution. As the stakes get higher and higher, I pray that our church, each individual here, would be unashamed of the gospel of Christ. Father, give us, give us the, the words to speak. Let us be prepared to give an account of the hope that's within us with gentleness and reverence to speak truth, to never compromise on the truth in a world that hates us. Father, we are thankful for your word and the promises that hold true because you are holy, set apart, and perfect. God, bless the rest of our morning. We pray these things in your